has uh, seen a decline in both its size and its social capital over the past few decades. Uh, here in our context, at least, we're in a post-Christendom world. And so now as churches, we face a unique challenge. Uh, we can't just open our doors and wait for people to come in. We've got to get out there and share the gospel with people who might never have heard it before. It might be a bit hostile, who think that they've left Christianity behind. And so it's important for us to know, uh, are people even open to change? Uh, we heard some of you talk now, and there's a big feeling that a lot of people aren't. What's this task going to be like? Uh, this week's chapter in our little adventure into our neighborhood is called Openness to Change. Uh, and that's what we're going to uh, do is hone in a little bit more on that today. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts this evening to your surprising and wonderful work. Humble us to let you take the lead strategy that will bring people back to you. But the wonderful work of our Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit prompting in the places we might not expect. In Jesus' name, amen. So last year, uh, I was at a conference uh, where we had a young adults Q&A. Uh, we had two Bible scholars from colleges in Australia, and the young adults were able to ask any and all questions about the Christian life. One story has really struck with me. Uh, this young woman asked the question, and she wanted to know how anyone can bear to have children with the state of the world it is in today. Now, now, she wasn't talking about politics or climate change or the economy or any of the myriad of reasons that uh, people might, you might have heard young people not wanting to have kids. No, she was a teacher, right? And in her experience, the current generation of kids is so distinctly evil, so awful and twisted that she couldn't even imagine bringing up child in this generation. The thing is, I, I was pretty shocked, but a lot of people seem to agree with that. Maybe not to the exact same extent, but there is a bit of a truism there, isn't there? It feels basically true that as each generation comes along, we've, we get further and further away from Jesus and closer and closer to something far darker. It feels like it probably would be really hard to bring up the gospel to this totally upside-down world where kids are these days. And it makes sense. Think about the trajectory of the generations. I mean, everything I've ever heard about the silent generation uh, is that they were this amazingly devout generation of stalwart Christian soldiers. I've heard maybe more than a dozen stories of people keeping their Bibles in their breast pockets and then being saved from a bullet to the heart, which is amazing that it happened so many times. Uh, it's great that those were standard issue. Uh, then you've got uh, baby boomers. And maybe they're a little less devout, but you've got Billy Graham crusades and... This generation were receptive and humble, and the 50s and early 60s were this wonderful time of good, wholesome family values that really fit with what Jesus all, is all about. And I, 
you've got a little bit of a hippie thing going on, but uh, that's uh, that a few people could, could have got lost in, but in the swell uh, of all this drug and music culture in the late 60s. But in the stories I've heard, that's, that's just a little diversion. Um, most people were into good, clean living. And then uh, Gen X comes along, and they're still doing okay. You've got the, the 70s and the 80s, you start getting a little secular, but you've also got the Jesus Revolution, and church stuff is still basically accepted. That was a good time to be a Christian. And then things started to go downhill. You've got the millennials, and that's where uh, the, these nasty millennials with their skinny jeans and their Dawkins and their internet. And so the story goes, they start to leave church in droves and culture becomes more liberal. And eventually we end up with Generation Z with their weird hair colors and their wokeness. And uh, they're so far from being Christian, now they claim to be witches. And so we have, and then finally, Perhaps the evilest of all, we have Gen Alpha. Um, maybe they say the evil, the most evil generation that we've ever had. Look at them. I mean, this is the story we tell ourselves as a society, whether we're Christians wringing our hands and worrying about the trajectory of society, or we're anti-religious and excited for the prospect of a new future, free from the shackles of religion. We all feel like this is the basic story of Christianity in Australia. And if we want to reach out to the current generation, then it's going to be really, really hard. It's an uphill battle. Because there's no way that they'll be receptive to what they, we say. They'll have little arguments ready. They'll be ready to fight. They'll be hostile. The thing is, though, we worship a God who points and laughs at our preconceived notions. He delights in doing the unexpected, in turning our stories on their heads and challenging us when we dare to think we know what's going on. See, that story doesn't quite stand up when we're met with the stats. We're looking again this week at the McCrindle research paper into faith and belief in Australia. And when we look at the evidence, we're going to see something quite surprising. So last week we looked at an Australia where a vast number of people don't know very much about Jesus, who are walking away from the church across generations, and most of them are unwilling to learn. But tonight we're going to refine some of those results a little bit and see this very interesting spark of hope in the middle of what looks like a were asked how open they would be to changing their religious views given the right circumstances. And here are the results broken down by generation for those who answered extremely or significantly. This is the top result. Uh, the highest answer possible. We see something really interesting. Uh, baby boomers are still relatively closed off at 1 in 20. Uh, Gen Xs are just a little bit over 1 in 10. But those difficult, culturally closed off, anti-Christian generations, Gen Z, is 1 in 5, and millennials are just a bit below that. Think about that. 1 in 5 young people self-report 
to be extremely or significantly likely open to change. That doesn't even include like the somewhats, the people in the middle. That number is just the most likely. There is an openness to the gospel in the places most of us might feel are really, really unlikely. And the number of people who indicate that they're open is pretty significant. These statistics here tell us a completely different story than the one that we've been telling ourselves, doesn't it? So what the older generations, or less lost, or more virtuous, and I don't think it shows us that the only hope is the next generation either. Or that we should pull all our focus on youth and young adult ministries. No, I think this shows us that we have a God who has a sense of humour about our pride. Because that's all that this is, isn't it? If you're part of an older generation and you just think younger generations are getting worse over time, then implicitly you place yourself above them, don't you? This is a story about pride. And if you're part of one of these generations and you look around yourself and you think, well, this generation is so lost and so devoid of values and virtue, then you implicitly place yourself above your peers, don't you? I've done it. I've definitely, definitely done it. I think if we all examine ourselves, we'll realise that we have too. This here is a story about pride. I'm sure this is not just about generations. This is, a, this is a deeper heart problem. I'm sure many of us would have the same response and shock if we broke down these responses by class or cultural background or political leaning. When we come to the project of sharing the gospel, thinking we're better than the people that we're sharing with, we're going to blind ourselves. If we don't put aside our pride and humble ourselves and realize that all of us are sinners, desperately in need of grace, then we might just miss the opportunity to bring to the gospel to people who really want to hear it. One in five. So, Let's take it to the Bible. I want to really focus on how Jesus responds to the prideful preconceptions of his era. If you keep your Bibles open to Luke 19, we'll see a story that's not about a generational gap, but it's about a cultural gap. And this cultural gap, it brings a lot of the same baggage and notions of decline and disdain that we might bring to generational sparring today. I mean, people would have thought similar ways about tax collectors as we might think about sharing the gospel with young people. And we're going to look into the face of our pride. And then we're going to love him who cares deeply for sinners. Here's the tools that we're going to draw on uh, first here. First, we need a shock to our systems to blast away our pride. And second, once we do away with our pride, we need to see this merciful king for who he is. So first, let's uh, read from Luke 19, chapter 1. 
sorry, 19, chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a tax collector and was wealthy. So, pause there. So, as many of you probably already know, in first century Judea, tax collecting was one of the highest social taboos. Tax collectors were local citizens who worked on behalf of the Roman Empire, and so they'd be the ground-level imperial control, this day-to-day connection with your oppressors, and they're gouging you for your already feeble wages. The people were seen as traitors, and rightly so, they were more than happy to sell out their peers for a chance at wealth. For a first-century Israelite, this is the last person And then Zacchaeus, on top of that, is the top boss of tax collectors. He's very wealthy, which indicates on top of working for the empire, he's also cheating people as well. So the narrative here paints Zacchaeus to appear uh, as this really big bad guy. To see Zacchaeus appear on the scene would be surprising in the cultural zeitgeist of this era. It's a shock to our systems. I want you to imagine one of the least likely people you think would ever become a Christian. One of the most hostile, the most socially and culturally different to you. Maybe it's someone in one of those generational groups, Gen Z or Gen Y, But if you picture that person in the place of Zacchaeus, here you might begin to understand the feeling the narrative is trying to provoke. Just to get at the pride that you have and crush it. To turn expectations on their heads. And so Luke continues, and I want to encourage you to see something interesting here. From verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not sense Jesus was coming that way. Now, this might have been a bit lost uh, through translation at about 2,000 years of context, but this is a comedic image. Uh, Back in the day, people would insult tax collectors by naming them after sycamore fig harvesters, uh, because what you'd do at the harvest is you'd come up to a sycamore uh, and you'd give it a really good shake. Let all the figs fall down and then you'd scurry around and pick them all up. And so they'd take this image for these tax collectors who would do the same thing. They'd come up and shake you upside down for all your money and go and pick it all up. It's where we actually get the term uh, sycophant. Uh, which means a flatterer who kisses up to a big power. So there's that. There's also something here that's meant to be funny about him being short. Uh, This guy who is the chief of all chief traders, this wealthy man, is portrayed like a little kid. He's tiny. He can't look over the crowds. And then he breaks into a run which is absolutely not dignified behavior for a grown man at the time. And then he scurries up the tree. And I mean, climbing trees, little kid. The whole thing is funny. It's a farce. 
It's a joke. In the first few sentences of this story, you get this looming image of the worst of the worst, big bad guy who steals from his brothers, to, who has become rich by shaking people down. And then suddenly, the narrative shifts to this total opposite direction, and he's this tiny little man scurrying around and climbing up trees. And the trees are actively insulting him. And so... Then this thing continues, and now instead of the harvesters shaking the fruit trees or sycophants shaking the money out of people, Jesus strides up and shakes a person out of a tree. From verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Jesus, as Jesus tends to do a lot, adds to the shock. First, he takes the position of the sycophant, taking his harvest from the sycamore tree, so that this strange, uh, so that's strange, that suddenly Jesus takes on himself the very image of the thing that people use to insult. Yes, in this very matter-of-fact tone, and makes an offer to stay at his house. Now, there's a tone shift again here, the image of Jesus harvesting this little weird man out of a tree is part of the humor. But to stay at his house, that's, that's deadly serious. And most, the largest shock of all. See, in Israel's culture of honor and shame, an important person staying at one's house was a symbol to everyone else in town that this house is more important than any other. Jesus takes this vicious, evil, traitorous, weird, scurrying little man, plucks him out of a tree, and then bestows the greatest honor he could give him. It's a really weird story. It's a shock to the system. And it's wonderful. Here, Luke is making a really important point that he conveys this as funny and shocking, that he bends and breaks and plays with our expectations because humor is a stake right at the heart of pride. And shock wipes away all our self-serious evil character who we think shouldn't be there at all is defanged made fun of, and then honoured above anyone else in the city. And so it points to the reader's prideful glare at him and either makes you laugh or leaves you dumbfounded. We need this truth. We need a shot to the system as well. In the same way that its original audience may have been terse and serious about this whole event, and we'll see that in a moment, we can be that way too, can't we? We can wring our hands and bemoan the state of the world, thinking that the current generations are just too harsh, too hard-hearted, too hostile. Isn't everything just getting worse? Aren't these new generations just falling further into the pit? The decline of Christianity speaks to the end of everything we hold dear. 
when we turn and point at other people and worry about just how evil they are, we take ourselves too seriously. The shock itself, the way the story is told, is to is amazing book gives us the tools for such, just such situations as this to laugh. Sometimes our seriousness is very silly. It's a shock to the system. It's a gift to us, to humble us, because Jesus' gift here is only beautiful to the lost. We need our pride shocked away to open up and see what Jesus is really doing here. So that's the the first thing. We need a shock to the system. Once we've had that, once we stop taking ourselves so seriously, we get the really good stuff. Pride, you can see, once you get rid of the pride, once you do away with the pride, you can see this merciful king for who he is and it's a wonderful joy follow with me from verse six seven all the people saw this and began to mutter he's gone to be at the house be the guest of a sinner but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord look Lord here and now I give half my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anybody out of anything I will pay back four times the amount Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So let's put aside verse 7 for a moment and we'll come back to it. What we see here for Zacchaeus is amazing. Now all of a sudden we get this third image of him. It's this righteous man so full of joy, and not just joy, but the fruits of the Spirit. He's overflowing with generosity, and he vows right to, to right his wrongs and bring fourfold blessing to the people around him. And Jesus says, this is just a foretaste. Salvation has come to him, and he is a son of Abraham. Remember, these tax collectors were seen as traitors, cut off from their communities, in bed with Rome and out of the family of Israel. But this merciful and wonderful Jesus brings him home and grafts him back into the family. Now, notice here what the condition was for Zacchaeus to receive this honour. Not because of his good deeds. Those only came uh, on the tail end of the honour Jesus gave him. No, Jesus shows the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus plucked him from a tree because he was lost. And so now in his generosity and mercy, Jesus offers him salvation and full restoration to the kingdom. But there's also a subtle tragedy here. Notice it? All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost, to feast with sinners and show them abundant kindness and redemption. But the people exclude themselves from the meal by not recognizing who they are. Zacchaeus 
in all of his evil, can see Jesus for who he is because Jesus, Zacchaeus knows he's a sinner. But when prideful people place themselves on the outside and look down on sinners as if they're not included in that definition, then they miss out. It's a warning to us to wipe our pride away like this... Uh, to wipe away our pride like this is a gift. Because when we see ourselves as sinners, we see clearly the mercy and kindness of our Lord because he's just like us. And we are just like our hostile and hard-hearted brothers and sisters in Gen Y and Gen Z. Statistic we saw here should be a shock to your system. Not so you can revel in how good young people are, but to recognise that all of us are people. We're all Zacchaeuses, sinners in need of grace. And if we discount certain groups of people because of certain ways they sin, whether they are hard-hearted and hostile or any other way, we miss golden opportunities when they're right in front of us. And perhaps more importantly, we'll forget who we are if we fall into pride and we won't see the wonderful mercy of our Lord Jesus. So, look into the face of your pride and get a shock to the system and see this Jesus for who he is. Look, I, I don't know what the heart of that young woman who was scared to have children was. I really hope she comes to a better conclusion one day. And I do hope her children flourishing isn't necessarily more evil than at the last. They just need the same thing as everyone else. They need Jesus. And our statistics show that one in five of them are crying out for him. Let's do our way with our pride and see them for who they are, just like us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, poke a stake into the heart of our pride. Help us to see each of us as a sinner saved by grace, each of us as small and as being gallantly plucked out by Jesus. And we pray as society and culture changes, as things seem to be moving away from you, that we would see that people's hearts haven't changed. Not really. That they desperately need you. That they are sinners in need of grace. Help us in your mercy to share the good news with those who want to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.